0: hey everyone and welcome to behind the box i'm your host sherry and we'll be interviewing passionate people who are on top of their game discussing all things workplace culture and diving a little deeper into thought-provoking topics we think you'll love we truly hope it makes a positive difference to your life business or workplace thanks for listening Hey guys, so how I know Jeff is actually a bit of a funny story. I have been on LinkedIn a lot more lately, just learning from what people are sharing and sharing what I can as well. And I came across Jeff's um, post and he was basically giving away Empathy Wines, which is Gary Vaynerchuk's new wine and uh, it was a rosé, and anyway, with that message, he was saying, "You know, let me know something that you are doing to give back in the world or to help your communities, and I'll send you a bottle of empathy wines." And I thought, what a nice way to spread joy and kindness, and maybe inspire someone to do something similar to what you're doing. So anyway, I wrote down my message, and then uh, before you know it, he sent me a bottle of wine. And we caught up and I learned a lot more about what he has done with his business. He started it when he was 18 and now it's grown over the last 15 years. And he shares a lot of his insights into what it was like starting some of his lessons. And I'm really excited to share that with you all. I hope you enjoy it.
1: It's always good to have an opportunity to chat about these things. And yeah, absolutely. So uh, my brother and I started the company when I was 18. So that was 2005. Um, And the the goal was was not to set out and do anything great or large. And I think that's probably often the case with a lot of people starting businesses, particularly when you're young. It was probably more so of what what am I good at and what is lacking and um, not much more beyond that. So we started a very small company and the goal was basically just that there, there were services lacking, particularly around IT um, at a regional level. And our, our thoughts were we could fill some of that gap and obviously have a job in the meantime. Um, it was not... A, there was, uh, looking back on our business plan, it was pretty unimpressive and I can see why banks didn't want to lend us money. <laughs> as, you, as you make mistakes and learn, you realise that um, the younger you probably wasn't hardly done by, you just didn't really know what you were doing. So we had, we had a big rough business plan and that was to make sure that we provided service and sold products around the IT market um, where we knew that there wasn't great work being done at that time. And it was, um, it was pretty poor and it was pretty ambitious and we made a lot of assumptions that we were later proved to be completely wrong on. So it was a mum and dad service store and we still run that store to the day in the same location and we still do service um, and sell computers to consumers. But obviously our company has changed a lot over those almost 15 years.
2: So what made you, because you did financial planning, I had, a, I had a look on your LinkedIn. So what made you decide to jump into that besides the opportunity that the market was there? Was it just a step into the business world or like what kind of triggered that?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the, I the, it's funny, it's funny. The uni, it was more so the pressure of people saying that you're smart, you should go to uni. And um, I think that's pretty common for kids, too, is it's if you're doing well at school, you should go to uni if you're capable of it. Um, And for me, I I did go back and complete that degree. But I did a half a year of that straight out of school and realized that it wasn't I wasn't happy doing that. Um, And I picked financial planning just because I really had a fascination with money. Um, I was really it it was it's very cool to know that that finance, um, I guess, makes the world go around a lot. And for me, it was something I thought it's always going to be helpful. No matter what industry I'm in, finance is going to be a strong factor. So that was the plan. And like I said, I later went back and completed that degree. But um, I did that for a short while and realized that I had an opportunity to do, um, I guess, something within the community that I was good at. And it's funny to this day when I go and speak to schools and other people around career advice, that the the same advice I give people is that find something that you're very good at, that you enjoy doing, um, which is exactly what it was. It was something that I enjoyed IT, it was, it came naturally to me, and it it's something that I was I I found very easy that other people found difficult. So I knew that I had a competitive advantage. Um, And of course my brother Luke who had been in that industry for a few years so he's four years older. um, We had a pretty Uh, good understanding of the industry pretty good understanding of the market um, and he was working for a competitor at the time or or what would become a competitor. Um, And yeah, so we we sort of had all the recipe, all the ingredients to make the recipe. And like I said, except for maybe some um, naivety on our end, which I guess we sort of showcased. Probably a good thing. Yeah, probably because you, I I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't do it now if they knew what, um, what was in store. And I don't necessarily feel that way ever, but I definitely Um, there were challenges that would have seemed unsurmountable that once you're in the thick of it you just push through and you just deal with it so um, we're probably very lucky that there was that level of naivety but I guess the other thing is I've continued to experience that naivety through the last 15 years of business because you climb one hurdle and then you discover something else that you're not comfortable or not aware of or you don't understand how it works so it It really is, um, you're always learning. And and that's something that I think every time I speak to people in the business world, when you're young and when you're starting out, you look up and you see all these people that have really got themselves together and they've got this amazing thing going on. And when you sit down with them for a coffee, you realize we're all the same and everyone's going through the same (laughs) stuff. So you sort of, you feel like you're very alone, but it's very much not. I think the the business world and the journey is very common and it's a really shared experience no matter what the industry is.
2: Yeah for sure I completely agree I think when you meet people who just have it all together like you know they've had their business for a while they're still human they still have all the same feelings as everybody else so it's kind of good to share that um, just connect like that I think connects people as well feeling like they can see other people who have been successful but have gone through the same kind of motions.
1: Yeah, and I hear people use terms like imposter syndrome where they're, uh, they're yeah. in charge of a lot of people. And, and a great example of that was obviously I own the company from the day one. We had our first staff member was a gentleman called Bernie and he um, he was 55 or something along those lines, maybe Yeah, around the 50-something when we first started out. Simon, an 18-year-old kid who's his boss and he's a 50-year-old and he's very good at his job, lots of years in the industry experience. Um, I mean, great core values too, so really respectful and and really, um, I guess, a really good moral fibre and all those things, which has probably helped a lot with us as far as setting what we consider to be the standard internally as well. But... Like that feels very uncomfortable to have someone like that, where ultimately you can tell them what to do, but you have no place in any other point in life why you should have authority over them. Um, So, yeah, I guess we hear it a lot where people say it's very lonely in business and they feel like they're faking it and all those things. And I think it's just normal. And it's great to get that message out there because people when I have reached out for help, people are always happy to help. And that's something that I was very unaware of.
2: Yeah, for sure. So if we go back a little bit as well, so before you started your business, probably when you were younger in high school, did you find that you were what? What were you like? Did you like IT? Were you always into technology? Um, I guess what what made you you during those years? Because making a decision to start a business and you know borrow money to do that with your brother, it's a big. I think it's a big thing, especially uh, being in uh, the regional. Areas as well where you might not see it as frequently, right? Where there's people that are—I mean, I can't actually say I haven't seen it, but I'd assume that it's uh, less likely to see lots of young people starting big things like that, or you know, starting kind yeah. of fresh from scratch. So I'd love to, yeah, hear your hear your story.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think that your comment is probably right, um, particularly 15 years ago, like the startups and business and entrepreneurship is very sexy now and it's it seems to be what's going on you've got a lot of innovator hubs and incubators and and it probably wasn't back then so much so um, and then yeah even borrowing money so we did our business plan to go to the banks the banks would never lend us money in the end we um saved a little bit of money and scrunched together about 20 grand with mum um so i would have much rather borrowed money from a bank than mum because if i don't pay a bank back I can deal with that, but I wouldn't be comfortable <laughs> not paying mum back. So,
2: yeah.
1: um, so in the end, we couldn't even really borrow money except for that. Um, but yeah, I guess for yeah. me, I was I, I was lucky that I grew up, again, being in a regional area, I think there's a lot of benefits. So work, for example picking fruit on farms. They don't care if you're 14 or if you're 30, if you're, if you can pick the fruit, you get paid for the buckets you pick. Um, so I, I had the luxury that at 15 years old on school holidays, I could go and work on a farm and I was getting paid as an adult, as long as I was willing to work hard and do good work. Um, so you might clear a thousand bucks or 1500 bucks a week working on a farm. Once you, when you come from a family where money is definitely not prominent and, um, you you experience that freedom that comes with money. It's really hard to go back from that. So for me, it was never as much about the IT as it was about business. And even when we were sort of, um maybe 15 which would have made luke 19. Uh, we were doing things like getting box trailers and going to farmers and getting all their seconds fruit and selling them at the sunday markets um which was you know back then the deal was we would sell it and we'd give them half so we had an awesome competitive advantage to everyone else at the markets because we could sell it for whatever we want Um, and the farmers were happy they got half of whatever we made and we were happy because if we had a great day we made plenty of money if we had a bad day we didn't lose money so I, it's that. It's that, and I hate to use the term because going back to the Gary Vee he uses it so much. It, but it's that hustle. It's the ability to. <laughs> I knew you were going to say and, that. Yeah, <laughs> I, and, and I don't even mean it. Like I don't put myself on any form of pedestal. There's people out there that work a lot harder and are probably, um, you know, more dedicated and more focused. But for me, it's that. Um, I guess, the the ability to to get up and do the hard work and do what needs to be done, regardless of whether it's glorious. And I've always enjoyed that. I've always liked the feeling of, and I know there's a lot of people, like I said, even physically who go out and do hard work. I guess working on farms and things like that taught me very young that I don't want to do that work. If I yeah. can avoid it and I can work in an industry where I don't have to, like, even, even seeing people who Forty years old with bad backs because they've worked really hard. Um, if I could avoid that, I would. Which was probably one of the other deciding factors of uni. Um, again, if you use your mind, you don't have to so much. And but I mean, in business, it's it was just the the enjoyment of of commerce, enjoying the game, and accepting the fact that if I work really hard, I can do really well, and I am the factor of success. If I work, if I don't work hard, I won't do well. Um and as soon as at a young age too you learn that, you realize that it is really all in my court and things go wrong, they're out sort of outside of your control, but more often than not, you're in control of the factors at play. So if you're if you want to be successful, and we did things like we took a wage of uh, the first three years, we took a wage of about a hundred bucks a week each out of the business and worked other jobs on the side. We share we lived in the same house. Um so two bedroom yeah. house. Um it was like, we, we just did it absolutely, whatever we had to do to succeed, we were not, we, there was no failure, people often say you've done really good to get through the first year, because most businesses fail in their first year, and all those things, and for us, it was always a joke, because there was, there was no way we were going to fail, we would have just worked harder, and if we made no money in the business, we'd work a night job, and it's just that, I guess, the mongrel, the ability to say, no matter what, I'm not going to lose here, and that's, I guess, like, even using the term failure, failure is something that I got very comfortable with in business because you do fail a lot, but they, I probably shouldn't say failure, it was not giving up. And and again, yeah. it's a really common theme when you talk to people in business who have, have pushed through struggling times, because obviously we've got GFC and all that around this time as well, um, it's just not giving up. It's that ability to say, no matter what, I will keep pushing forward.
2: So I guess for people who are starting out who might be going through those really hard times, how would you – what kind of advice would you give to them to continue going and not give up? I mean, you mentioned doing whatever it takes, like working the extra hours if you need to, having that mindset of this isn't this isn't going to be a failure. We're just going to keep going. But what what sort of strategies would you give pe- to people to get through that?
1: Yeah, and I guess it's, it's sort like of that, hard too because mm. – for, for me, it was something that I was good at, like we've already covered, or at least I felt that I was good at and I have gotten better at. So, for me, I did have a little bit of talent there to start off with in that, um, in that area. So, for some people, it might not be good advice to say push through no matter what. Because if, yeah. you know, it's the same as if I said to you, I'm going to join a sports team, I'm not that good. I'm not, I, I, it's not my thing. So, I could have that same attitude and just fail for 15 years before I realise that I should just give up and watch Netflix but I I just <laughs> genuinely, I, just genuinely if, if, I guess it comes down to acknowledging early in the piece am I good at this and am I willing to do whatever it takes and maybe even setting a time frame that hey if I fail for four years maybe I should give up um, but the thing for us is it was really about that mindset of knowing that I, I am good at this and and again you know when you're good at things and if you're not comfortable admitting that to yourself other people can identify that in you so for me we we like i enjoy talking and i talk a lot and i have a tendency of talking too much and that was identified to me by teachers very young at school i got into a lot of trouble and had a lot of discussions with the principal about knowing when to open my mouth and when to keep it closed um and for me it was very much about acknowledging that and turning that into a strength and for for me that strength is that i i, I and i've gotten a lot better do don't get me wrong. But for me, it was leaning into that and saying, OK, I'm really going to push hard and make sure that I use that yeah. to maybe work, I guess, in sales, for example, and, and try to win business with that ability rather than trying to turn it off and become somebody I'm not. So leaning into who you are, um, but I guess knowing what your what is your how, how how what are you willing to put on the line and maybe setting something in in the sand and saying, okay, by this date, I'm going to have some sort of result um, and just being, I guess, willing to make the sacrifices. And I think that's where people come short because I'm, I'm yet to meet someone who's successful in business who hasn't made massive sacrifices. I I know that people get lucky. I've never met one of them.
2: (laughs) Yeah. 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 And uh, I loved what you said, like everything that you said about, you know, becoming self-aware. So, what are you actually good at? And if it's hard for you to identify that, speak to someone and really use that hone that skill in to get better and actually be successful. Um yeah. so I yeah, I love that advice. Uh what I was gonna ask now is now as well was what what whether it's now or earlier on, were you not so great at? And how did you manage that? How did you get better at it? Or did you was it more about maybe delegating what you weren't great at or hiring for what you weren't great at. How did you manage that, especially maybe at the beginning?
1: Yeah. And I've got probably both examples because there's things that I'm still not quite, um, well, I know I'm not great at and there's things earlier on that I was, um, that I definitely were a challenge. So I guess for me, And this is a sibling thing, I think, a lot too. And I I know other people who are in business with family members where they've sort of come to these similar conclusions. As a younger brother with an older brother in business, you're trying to do everything they do as good or better. Um, You don't realise at 18 years of age that you've got skills and that you have that you have advantages and they have advantages. Um, So for me, it was originally it was about trying to be as good of a technician and as good as an IT Mind as luke and and the other folks that worked with us, and I probably spent years doing that, trying really hard to keep up with them when my brain wasn't really wired like theirs was um, when in reality, I was better at dealing with people than they were, um, and not that they weren't good at dealing with people. It was just something that I naturally um, gravitated towards. I really enjoyed it and still do so I guess for that it was about understanding that it takes a a combination of skill sets to make a team um, and you don't necessarily need three people that all have the same skill set. So, and again, I think the baggage of family where it is a brother and you're always trying to be as cool as they are and hang out with their friends and all all of those factors, um, which anyone who's a younger sibling can probably relate to, um, I, I think that's a barrier. And then I guess the other thing is moving forward now where we've got a team of sort of 25 folks is knowing what to surround yourself with and I I've spoken to people with different trains of thought here my train of thought is if you're good at something do it as much as you can and don't worry about getting better at all the other things you're not very good at Um, and my only reason for that is it's just what's worked for me so that maybe isn't for everyone but for me it is about really understanding that the, there's things that you're not good at and and i don't try to fix them um at all for the most part and, and i make sure that the when i surround myself with people who have those skills i don't get involved in their stuff so a great example i guess for me is organization and it's not that i'm quite cli- uh, messy or disorganized uh, in the way most people think but prepping for things but i can't prep for a meeting so a lot of people have a big meeting, they'll want to prep, they'll do a slideshow, they'll practice the words, that's not me, I can't do it. In, in fact, it breaks me because then when I get in the room, I've lost the originality of what I'm trying to do. So I put people, like I have people who work around me who are very organized and very well prepped um, because as much as I can wing it, when you do something that's big and complicated, you don't want to wing it. When the client asks you a question and the you can't answer because you're not prepared. Um, it, it does turn into a negative. So I guess really trying to surround myself with people that complement my personality, um, and and that's in our IT industry can be tricky too because we get a lot of personalities who are quiet and introverted in in the technical side of things, um, yeah. whereas I'm quite loud and can be obnoxious.
2: <laughs> I don't <mean>, think you're obnoxious, <laughs> but no, I love that because even now talking to you, it just sounds like everything flows really naturally. Like you're just you know, it's not like you've had to prepare because you've just come in and you're just being you and you're just freestyling. And I can see how that can be translated in all the meetings that you're having with clients.
1: And I think being honest and um, transparent really helps that too. So for me, that's Like within our organisation as a whole, transparency is really important, particularly the nature of the work we do. We're working within people's businesses with sensitive topics. Um, So when you're not trying to hide anything and not trying to put on a face that's not yours, it's really easy, I think, to wing it because I and that comes back to self-awareness, knowing who you are and being comfortable with that. I think people really struggle winging it when they are faking it at the same time, whereas when you're being very genuine, I, I, like even when I make mistakes and I do plenty, um people give you a lot of a lot of allowances for that when they can tell that your heart's in the right place, you've got good intent and that you're being genuine. So I think that's another thing that kids really struggle with these days is they're all trying to, and I was probably the same, but they're all trying to be something that maybe doesn't isn't their true self. and I mean, you can't expect an eighteen year old to know their true self because, At my age now, which I still consider to be young, I definitely am not 100% on that. I think most people probably die not knowing that 100%. But it's that when you are very genuine and transparent, I think you can get away with being that way too. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so I know that you work a lot with um, schools and you do a lot of volunteering as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you've done so far in that space?
1: Yeah, I guess. um, So I, and, and moving towards those passions, I guess, as an organization um, traditionally, I mean, we're a for-profit business. So ultimately we're in business to make money um, which is why most people start a business. I've got to give a, take my hat off to people that go into a business knowing they're going to leave with nothing and never take more than an average wage um, and doing good things for the world. For me, I never went into business with any intention except for to make money. And as you start to work within that framework, you start to realise that they're not mutually exclusive. You can do good things and make money um, and help both parties at the same time. So probably the big step for us was the introduction of the product um, you may have heard of it. It was made by mm-hmm. Apple and they called it the iPad. Um, so, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yes. pretty popular. Um, so yeah. when that came out, which it wasn't that long ago, uh, if you think of it, I, I can't think off the top of my head, but we're talking like 2007 or something like that. Yeah. Um, so like we're not talking a long, actually it was later than that. Anyway, um, it was essentially a product that we started seeing schools take up very easily and very quickly and we started finding schools would come in and buy 100 iPads which from a sales perspective is awesome, you've got someone giving you a heap of money they're buying a lot of product. it seemed really easy and then what started happening is schools weren't using them right they were giving them to kids who are using them for YouTube and games and taking photos of rude things they were not being um, protected in school so they were getting smashed and lost and stolen and we realised that we needed to support that area and um, I guess start making responsible choices in how we sold it and who we worked with Um, so that was my first introduction into working with schools and um, we got some really good successes in early days where we got to sit down and we got great support from Apple too I can't stress that enough I definitely didn't have the frameworks Apple held our hand and said we'll work with you and support you Um, but we went into schools and we said listen if you're going to buy iPads let me help you use them properly let's put some best practices in place let's train your teachers the staff the students and just going into those schools in one year and then two or three years later walking out and seeing how great things ran um, and the, the smiles on faces and the kids using them properly and the teachers behavior, uh, being able to behave, behavior management, their children and all those things was it was very rewarding. And I realized that it was something we could do and again, make money out of it, but at the same time, do good work. Um And we've been doing that ever since. I've literally spent my last four days at a conference in Gold Coast uh, where we've been helping, uh, showcasing schools, technology. Um, And we're we're doing more and more in that space all the time. We now hold contracts directly with the Department of Education uh, for supply. And and again, it's a massive growth area for us. So I I guess the points there is it did feel good. And the other thing is we've realised by doing the right thing, we often benefited financially as well, which a lot of people sort of miss that. Um, And I don't, I'm not, sort of particularly spiritual or any of that stuff. I'm not necessarily saying it's karma, but we have found the more good we do, the better we're rewarded both financially and, and in other ways. So we I think, again, that comes down to that intent. From the, um, I guess, donation of time, that was, again, it was a, it was almost forced upon us because schools wouldn't pay for help. Um, a lot of the time they would say, yeah, we know we've got a problem and we'd say, cool, for $1,000 a day, we can come fix it and they wouldn't mm-hmm. pay it. So we just started doing it for free. Um, and again, that, that lent us down to many roads, and I now volunteer with CSIRO and some other organisations as well. Um, but again, what we found is that it was, it genuinely was its own reward and not just in the warm, fuzzy feeling. We genuinely it bought us credit with places like the department where maybe otherwise they wouldn't have considered a regional reseller like us for state government contracts. Um, so, yeah, we, we do a lot in that space, and it, it, it isn't just philanthropic, it genuinely it's it's about doing the right thing, but we do find we get rewarded for it too. And when yeah. we can tick both those boxes, it's because we, as a business, you've got to justify your time as well. Um, it's it's about finding that balance.
2: For sure, and I think once you change your mindset from you're there just to be making money to you want to help, I think just everything falls to falls into place. And you're right, you benefit from both feeling good about helping, actually making a difference, and the financial side catching up with it as well. So. I completely agree, just just completely changes your mindset and how you do things in business. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. You touched on you touched on how you saw the shift in behaviour from, like, the teachers and the kids using the iPads uh, based on the frameworks that you shared with them. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I'm sure people would be keen on learning how they could maybe even teach their own kids um those frameworks or use those frameworks that you touched on just to help control usage if they think, you know, that their kids might be on the iPad or phones for too long?
1: Yeah, it's a massive area at the moment. And like having kids of my own, I definitely see those patterns emerge. So my son at 13 now has a phone that he spends a lot more time on with other activities than he does to make phone calls. So I, I, even (laughs) as a parent, I see that and feel that. Um, I guess the The big thing for us and and the the, the approach was very much to take it as a holistic approach rather than looking at the symptom, which it very much is a a symptom that we see when we see kids spending too much time on technology. Um, And this is something I'm actually looking at going back to uni to study because there's a lot of opinions on it and there's a lot of... um, there's, I don't think there's a right and wrong. There's a lot of research being done. So I, I think as a symptom, we we do, we do had other things. We had television. So television was something that if you chose to, you could sit in front of all day. Um, obviously, it wouldn't have been a bad thing if you were sitting in front of a book all day, but it's still the same sort of thing. It's something that's taken away your attention. Um, so I think the, the approach we take with schools is for them to share their vision. And it's not dissimilar to actually starting a business um, because schools are sort of like a business. So... Without that vision and without knowing where you're trying to go, it's very hard to get there. So the big thing we found with schools is it was like, hey, this school's got 100 iPads and they're doing good things. Let's buy 100 iPads, um, which in theory sounds quite logical. But the reality was that school had a vision and their vision was to make technology part of their day to day curriculum or in some cases not make it a, a lunchtime activity or have computer clubs or whatever that looked like. Um, so a lot of the work we do and we still do to this day is about getting people to come to terms with what their vision is and really articulate that vision, note it down in a way that they're sharing it with their core team and preferably the whole school, of student stakeholders, um, and and really working that every time we're making a decision, is it taking us closer to our vision or further away from our vision? Um, and because what I've found is even the schools that don't know, and it, it's the same with parents, we know what we want for our children, but we don't talk about it very much. So even the schools that don't know and have never spoken about it, when you get someone on a one-on-one and say, let's talk about it, and you ask those questions, they know what they want. Um, but the person beside them may not know that that's what they wanted and the parents maybe, maybe don't know. It's very, very hard to get a team on board like that if you don't share that and, and really, like I said, articulate that down to sometimes fine details. So I think from a parent's perspective, um, we I, – I, like, I will – shamelessly say that I use things like iPads as a babysitting device if I've had a busy day and I come home and the kids are running around crazy I'll say here go sit on the iPad for half an hour I don't think that's ever changed I'm very aware of it and I know Mm -hmm. what I'm doing and why I'm doing it but I think if my if I'm aware of it I don't think it's a problem I think where it becomes a problem is when you're unaware of it and it's the whole weekend's gone and you haven't spoken to each other and I think that's also I mean that's that's not just in schools that's in businesses and obviously families as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Defining the vision or the purpose of what you're actually trying to achieve. I think that also sharpens people's thoughts on, you know, day to day interaction with the devices or in anything that they're really trying to achieve. So I think that's like awesome advice. And it kind of sounds like you're doing a little bit of brand work, um, helping these schools kind of come up with their vision for technology in their business as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's and again going back to giving credit to where mm. it's due. Uh, folks like Apple have, because obviously they're on the raw end of this. When people complain about devices and how they're changing our kids and the generational problems we have, people like Apple cop it big time because they're the ones yeah. who're providing the they're the they're the drug dealer who's putting the drugs on the street. Um, so they take that <laughs> responsibility very seriously, and we get guides like there's a there's a there's a resource we use that basically breaks this down into steps for us, and it's got you, you know five fantastic doctors who have created the resource that Apple have obviously partnered with to generate it. But we talk about things like how, how we measure success. Um, and again, it's, it's all stuff that is so relevant in business. But how, what is success? How do we define success? Because for you, it's different to me. And like for a not-for-profit, for example, success isn't about a bank with lots of money in it. Um, for a school, particularly not about that. Um, so it's about those things. And How do we uh, upskill the stakeholders? How do we share that information to them? How do we promote the successes? And obviously, um, in some cases, promote the failures and and explain what we've done to correct them. And it's all those components. And again, we don't, it's not exclusive to schools and it's not exclusive to things like iPads. It's something that we probably all look at in a business as we get to a certain level of maturity that we realise that these are things that if we don't talk about it, people make their own minds up and it may not be the decision that you wanted them to make up
2: yeah that's so true um thinking thinking on your business and maybe the work that you've been doing with schools or it could be in your personal life uh what is something that you are really really proud of
1: um yeah this is a hard question and it's even when people again you go to schools and talk about success nobody well not a lot of people I've met really enjoy talking about their own successes because we're uh, I guess no one likes to toot their own horn um I guess for me it it is probably both business and personal I mean obviously I am uh, I do have a family and my wife's incredibly supportive of the work I do and the work I have to do to be, again, have that won't quit attitude. That, that, that definitely has impacts on my family because when I have to choose between a family engagement that I should, like it is my daughter's birthday today. Um, Oh, this 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 there was supposed to be an event where I where I was uh, attending and I said I won't go but this time last year I was at an event in Gold Coast instead of at my daughter's birthday Um, so nobody wants to do that no dad wants to say I'm going to miss my daughter's birthday but for me it's knowing that um, we I have that support and again my wife very much plays that role and is incredibly supportive Uh, she knows exactly who I am as a person and what I what I need to be successful Um, and then of course I you know I have three children so so for me, I, I, I do feel incredibly successful in my personal life and the fact that I can come to a business and also get to enjoy the, the – and it is a, a lot of fun owning a business. Like there's definitely lows, but there's a lot of highs as well. So I feel very lucky that I have that balance where a lot of people maybe don't. Um, and, and I guess from the success of a business, the fact that we get to employ people who have a job and we get to create a great workplace for them where they can come in and work every day, that is far more of a measure of success to me than money in the bank.
2: Yeah, that is awesome. And how have you managed to get that balance? Like what, what do you do to achieve that? I guess, what does balance look like to you?
1: Yeah, I, and again, this is a journey that my wife, Candace, and I went through together um, from a personal point of view, because what I had is I was looking at a lot of people and they were saying things like, oh, you've got to make sure you get your work-life balance. You've got to make sure when you walk through the door that you turn off and that you don't think about work. And mm-hmm. they were giving me these sort of very black and white solutions to what I consider to be a very great problem. And I really struggled with it. And what we determined together over the course of probably four or five years was that my personality, because people who are um, often experience really big highs are the same people that tend to hit the lows as well. So my personality, for me to be happy, I need to know that I'm doing good work. If I'm doing crap work, I, I it affects me and it affects me personally as well. So for example, when I walk through the door, if I know I haven't done everything I needed to do in that day's work, uh, my family doesn't get the best of me. So we worked out fairly, not early, but I mean, over some time and, and a lot of trials that I have to do what I have to do in a day. And, and sometimes it means that I get home at 10 to 5. And sometimes it means I stay back for an extra hour so I can make sure it gets done. Um, but that makes me feel good. And then I walk through the door happy. And I love spending time with the kids and the family because mm-hmm. I know that I've given a lot. Um, I, I'm happy to take once I know that I've given. I, I hate taking when I haven't given. So I it, it is a tricky one. And I think People that stand up and talk about work-life balance and and make it sound like it's a one-size-fits-all, I've really struggled with that because there's a lot of that, even on the internet, there's a lot of things that talk about work-life balance and how you have to do it and that you need to make sure that you never miss your kids' things. Sometimes I do choose to miss out on my kids' things because I know that I'm going to be sitting there watching them do their dance on stage thinking about everything else that I should be doing. I'm not going to enjoy it when they look look up in the crowd and they see me sitting on my phone instead of watching them, that's probably going to hurt them more than me saying, listen, I can't make it this time, but next time I'll be there and when I'm there I'll actually be there. I'll be present. Fully be present. Be present. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I agree. I think, I think the world is changing. I don't really think there's such thing as work-life balance. It's just one life and work is just within that and work takes and up a lot of our times, right? Exactly, technology, technology. Yeah,
1: it's like we can work from remote. We can work – like I – the last thing mm. I do before I go to bed at night is check my emails. And I, I've said that to people and they're like, oh, that's that's terrible. You shouldn't do that. I sleep better because I know I don't have anything nasty in my inbox. Exactly. It's just who I am. So I, I get the reasons previously. And, and like you said, it is a generational shift. It's a technology shift. But I, I it, it a lot of people would feel sick knowing they've got to check their emails before they sleep. And the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is check my emails. Check my it. whole day's run. By my calendar, my calendar doesn't say it's in there. I'm not doing it. So it's, that's, I'm not saying that lasts for everyone, but for me, that is what provides me the work-life balance. Cause if I know I've checked my emails and there's nothing nasty in there, I can then throw myself 100% into everything else I'm doing. And I, again, when I meet a lot of people who are what I would consider to be high functioning and Terms like high function and offered followed up by terms like sociopath. Um, but yeah. high functioning, from the point of view that I, there, there's a lot goes on in the head all the time. You know, a lot of people I meet who are running businesses, they struggle with sleep, they struggle with depression, they struggle with those things. I, I think if you find a mechanism that works for you, that's really the only thing that matters. And I guess being fair to people around you, like my wife and I have been very honest about the relationship from day one, and that I, you know, I do work hard, and that's what makes me happy, and she. I, I know that she will be there for those kids when I'm not, that they're never going to get left at school because we have that support network. And, you know, as she goes off and, and pursues her own endeavors with work, like the um, Henry, my youngest is about to go off to school next year. And that means they're all at school. Um, she's currently studying and she's going to be busy at work. So and then it's time for me to make some of those sacrifices to, to provide that balance. I think that give and take is really important and knowing that you're surrounding yourself with people that, you're giving them the full explanation of what they're signing themselves up for, but you are very much compatible. And I think that's something a lot of people struggle with where they don't have that support network and it doesn't need to be a spouse. It may be a business partner or a friend or a, you know, a brother, um, but I think having yeah. that support network is so important.
2: Yeah, definitely. And someone who is understanding of your needs and, and actually working together as a team to achieve what you need and, to, at
1: work and at home. Yeah. Yeah. And for that to be the case, you have to be honest in your communication with them. You can't expect people to, to determine your needs for you. Like if, And this, again, young men are the worst for it. Young men don't say when they've got problems, I oh, will bottle it up and it'll all be sweet. I, I The one thing I, mm. that really resonates with me when I do hear people like Gary B talk is about that new alpha male, the one who's willing to say I'm struggling or I need help or, Um, You know, showing that kindness and empathy, uh, those things are so important. And people that show those emotions generally are the ones who get the support. The people who say, no, everything's fine and then break down, really, nobody, you can't, people can't help you unless you let them in.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's a really good, that's a really good message as well for people who might find it really hard to actually speak up. But at the end of the day, you're right. If you're not communicating your truth, then you're not going to get the outcome that you want. Yeah, I think um, most people
1: want to help you. Like if you, you see people do public speaking, they get up on stage, you can tell they're nervous, they struggle and stutter. The crowd's not laughing at them. The crowd's got their heart. Yeah. Stuck. You can tell they sit there and they're on the edge of their seat because they feel so bad for them and they're they're trying to support yeah. them and show them that, hey, we're here for you. And the person on the stage feels like everyone's about to give him a hard time, but the truth is, if you're if you're genuine and and you're you're doing, you've got a good message and a good heart, and you're trying to do the right thing. Most, I mean, there's fools in the world, but most people are there to support yeah. you and guide you.
2: Yeah, yeah, agree. Um, I just spoke to Andre Eichmeier recently. He's one of the co-founders of Vino Mofo, and he just did this clip that talks exactly about that, where he talks about how. Going up on stage, people are so nervous because they think it's like a performance um, and yeah. they're going to be judged with that performance. But really, if you go up there and you're giving a message with your heart and you're just being honest and you're being genuine, it's not a performance. It's just a message that you need to get across. Um, and I think yeah. that kind of alleviates that pressure as well but yeah that really and we've, um, all,
1: we've all yeah. felt that too like I, I'm not someone who particularly struggles with those sort of things but you've, we've all felt like we're in that place so I, and again going back to right at the start of the conversation talking about empathy wines like that is empathy knowing how somebody mm-hmm. else feels and then giving them that that space to be themselves or like that we've all experienced that so I, I mean there's not many, like I said, they probably exist, but there's not many people that are looking for you to fail. I think most people want to see you succeed.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so going into workplace culture, and you were touching on it a little bit before as well, um, building up your business, can you talk to me a little bit about your workplace culture, why you think it's important, and um, share some of the things that you've you've done to help it be a, a more thriving workplace?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and 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 I guess the, the the precursor to this is that nobody starts a business. Well, very rarely would someone start a business with workplace culture as their main concern um, because your main concern is getting customers and paying the bills <laughs> yes. and hiring staff and getting <laughs> a premises and all those things. Um, so yeah. I think it's something that we, most people develop as on the journey at some point, And it often takes a kick in the bum to actually realise that this is important and you need to focus on it. Um, and I mean, I'm definitely no Google and I, I actually was at the event i've been at in gold coast i was across from a stand of a company called asha who do products in schools like sorry they do um support services for schools like painting and electrical and things like that um and they, the ladies that were working at that stand were telling me that their boss is massive on culture and they've got like a skate bowl getting built in the middle of their thing and like all this really, really <laughs> like <fun stuff>. slides <laughs> yeah like they, they do tours away where they take all their teams, Snowboarding and surfing and uh, like and that's yeah. not me. Um, and it's not not that I wouldn't do it. It's just it's I'm a long way off that. So I don't like people thinking that I'm some Google. Uh, but I guess the thing for us is that workplace culture was something that we didn't ever consider until a certain point. So we probably got. Uh, seven or eight years into business before it was a conversation full stop, um, which is probably too late. Having said that we managed to turn it around and, and it since has been a massive focus. So I guess for us, workplace culture was a um, nice to have. It was that if someone will hire someone who's got the best skills, who can do the job um If the customers like them, great. If they're a jerk in everything else, as long as they tick all those other boxes, it's probably fine. Um, And that was, uh, over time, continually adding people like that to the team. And again, not saying the folks I had working for me were the problem. It was a cultural problem within the organisation. And and if you're blaming the staff you hire, I think that's always a reflection on the leadership and the company, not the staff. Um, And it wasn't so much that we're blaming the staff. We just weren't highlighting the right, factors of their roles. Um, so we, we ended up with a quite a culture problem, and it was that there was none rather than that it was particularly bad, um, but there was no focus on it. So as a company, we started um, looking at things Can like ask, our vision... Um... You yeah, know please. how you
2: were saying you were saying um there it, it's not necessarily that there was a bad culture but there was no culture. What would that mean for people coming into work? Like, what does it mean for there to be no no workplace culture? Yeah,
1: um, so no induction for is a, is a uh, really big highlight. So for me, there was no induction when you started work. Here's where you sit. Good luck with everything. Um, so there was no setting of standards. Um, I okay, guess. and and that's not to say we had you know, bad behaviour, catcalling, whatever it is, but th- there was just no induction. There was no story. There was no, this is who we are. This yes, is how got we operate. It. Yeah, um, got it. And I guess, I guess from the perspective of um, as an external organisation, what we found is our clients would gravitate towards individuals within the organisation and they very much formed a relationship with the individual because the company itself didn't have a um not, not an image, but didn't have a personality. Whereas these days, our company very much has a very core personality. This is who we are. This is where we come from. This is where we're going. So I think that in, the lack of induction, I think, is a massive alarm for those who don't have culture. If you're not inducting people, and again, we're nowhere near where we need to be. We still are getting better at this every time we hire. Um, but if you're not inducting people, you're you're not telling them who they are within your organisation. So again, they, they will pick for you and they probably won't always pick how you would have picked. So that there was that lack of induction um, in the hiring process. Mm-hmm. There was no focus on personality or at least very little focus on personality. Whereas these days we hire almost exclusively on personality. Um, and that's not saying we make everyone do a disc profile and then we highlight the sections of the quadrants that look appealing at that. That's mm-hmm. yeah. saying we shortlist with resumes and then we interview very thoroughly a lot of people we make very sure of who's entering all and it's again not infallible but we put a lot of effort into does this person feel right and uh, you know going back to the the um, karma comment i know that sounds very new age but that's so important does this person feel like they're a good fit um mm-hmm. and that that's something that probably makes a lot more decisions than it used to we, we we put a lot of time and effort into that feeling um but yeah so we the focus was um not around culture, and then we sort of flipped the board and got the team together and said, listen, we've strayed and it's our fault as leadership. It's our fault as a company. Um, We've realised that we're letting people get away with things because they're very good at their jobs. Um, And in a lot of organisations, that's the sales Mm. people, for example, they'll swan in, make a sale, but because they're on target, nobody will get up them for being- That's um, so true. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, and it goes, and it still goes on. I know plenty of organisations that have that as a dynamic, but um, so it's the, for us, it was, the, the statement was, I don't care how good you are at your job. If you're not a good person, you don't treat people well. If people don't like you, then we're going to start having problems. Um, and some people jumped um, early as in they realized that that's not what they signed up for and it definitely wasn't what they signed up for other people changed um but as we continued to hire and as we continued to grow culture was always first and at front if you if it wasn't if you weren't a culture fit we wouldn't bring you on um and again it wasn't just about being a preferred hire or any of those things it was about the fact that we knew you wouldn't be as successful if you weren't a fit
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And I love those things. I think you're right, induction is really important. And I loved what you said about the stories. So actually telling the story of who we are, why we exist, like, what, what do we care about, what our purpose is, what our mission is, and then By telling that story people either are connecting with it resonating with it are excited about it or they're going to be like those who have just realized actually this company is going somewhere where
1: I don't want to go or it just doesn't suit me
2: anymore and Yeah, it's a good way to go about it. that's a
1: prerogative too. Like you've got to remember when you're hiring people, you don't own them, you're borrowing them. So if you're not going in the direction they want to go, that's perfectly fine. And like things like values, core values of an organisation, they're so, you can find them on every boardroom wall, um, but you should be able to talk to people in the organisation and say, what are your core values? And they should be able to tell you, you know, they don't need to quote them verbatim. We're not trying to make people memorise them because that's not the same. They should be able to tell you what we who we are as an organisation. And again, if you're not inducting people, they've got no way of knowing that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so moving on to leadership, uh, some of the things that you've already said, I think really stand out to me um, as being, you know, in a position of being a good leader, because you're talking about things like accountability um, and not blaming kind of others for, you know, hiring mistakes and the like. So given now that we're in this this space of change being a constant and you're in technology, so you would know this so well, things are changing all the time. The way we work is changing all the time. What we're using to get our work done is changing all the time. So I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on, you know, what you see as a great leader in this space and what you see as being a successful leader
1: now yeah, probably and probably the decades to come. Absolutely. And and I would very much say that I'm young in this space um, because, for again, going back on that first, uh, like really when people say how long you've been in business and we say 15 years, they think you've got yourself really well sorted. We, I would say we're a closer to a startup in terms of a lot of things internally um, because our company's changed so much over that time and our teams mm-hmm. have changed and what we service and deliver has changed. So um, I, I wouldn't ever stand up and say that I'm a leader who has everything worked out or that I would be a good role model even necessarily for people to look at and um, copy. But my, my views on leadership are very much to take ownership for pretty much everything um which again doesn't suit every personality type for me it's that i hired you or I instructed you or I didn't instruct you, instruct you, no matter what happened at some point, I am accountable. Um, so if I hold myself accountable for everything, it's not enjoyable, but it means that you, if you don't, if you're not accountable, you, if you don't think it's your fault, you can't change it. Um, and and again, I've seen this in other ways. You're taking the power out of your hands. You're, you're giving away, yeah, you're, you've got no power to fix it. So unless you, if you say that's not my fault in any way, like I'm not saying it's all your fault, but if you say it's not my fault in any way, you can't fix it. So if you can't fix it, then you're, you're basically taking away your opportunity to to be involved in the process, which as a leader, by definition, you're supposed to direct to that process. So for me, that accountability is very, um, very important. And knowing that I, at some point, I'm, I'm either wrong because I helped you wrong, or I didn't help you, or I hired you when I shouldn't have, or I allowed a behaviour to happen like all that sort of stuff. So for me being a leader is about understanding that we work for the folks we employ um and that we are responsible for making them successful because ultimately it's my business. If the business goes broke, they'll go get a job next week somewhere else. Um, It's it's me who has who's paying the price and the repercussions of that. So I need to make myself available to them to make them better um, if that's what they need. Some of them don't. I've got amazing staff. I've got people who make me better constantly um, and that's the, that's the dream dynamic because they come to work and we, we help each other grow. Um, but I definitely wouldn't say that you ever stop growing as a leader. Um, I don't think anyone says that's it. I finally got it all sorted out. And then they go to work and do the <laughs> next 30 years with it sorted. Yeah. I, Cause as the things change and, Like I speak to people who are seventy years old and retired from executive level positions, and they they have conversations about epiphanies they've just had, or they look back on another business ago. I wish I knew that twenty years ago. I guess the one advantage I've got is age. Um, I am young to be in the role I'm in, and a lot of people don't get to do this at my age. How are
2: you?
1: I'm thirty three. Yeah. So from a, I guess it's different to be a CEO when you own the company because you can put any title you want after your name Um, but uh, to be able to manage a team of sort of Mm. 25 at that age I I get to learn a lot of a lot of lessons and and like I said a lot of failures too but failures that I've said again we stuffed up we're going to fix it and I think that second part's really important to say we stuffed up and move on you're not learning from that to say we stuffed up we're going to fix it and then doing whatever it takes to fix it I think is where we really learn
2: yeah that's awesome and in um when you were just ex- describing how your company is still like a startup in many ways because it's grown from the first store you've opened to where it is now do you want to um just describe the changes and and how it's different from when you started obviously there's huge changes over the last um 15 years but do you mind um, yeah giving us an overview of that
1: yeah for sure i mean the technology's changed but that's always going to have changed um so For us, the real, the big changes were we started out essentially as a retail store who offered repair services Um, as the markets have matured. So going back to being regional, we didn't have an Officeworks, we didn't have a JB Hi-Fi, we didn't have any of that. Um, So for us, it was a, there was a gap in the market and we started to fill that gap and then big players came into town and really put a lot of effort into things that we wouldn't be able to scale to. Um, so what we realized is that people are less and less attached to their technology as a as a piece of equipment and more and more attached to the experience that it provides. Yeah, so um, for example, if, if your iPhone plays up and it's an iPhone 10. And then you 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 it breaks and you go in and swap it for an iPhone XS or whatever it is. You don't care about the iPhone. You care about your data being transferred from A to B. So what we realize is people are buying the experience, particularly consumers businesses are buying a solution. It's a solution to some form of problem. It may be that they need a computer to type on it, may be that they need a boardroom solution that can do video conferencing. People are not as attached to the product, they're more attached to the experience or the solution. So the big change for us has been changing to be what we consider to be a solution provider um, or a service provider rather than a shop. Um, yeah. And that's the, that's the big change. Having said that, the reason I sort of look at us more like a startup is we still have people wearing many hats. Like, I've got a sales uh, team yeah. where some of these folks are doing marketing, and I've got, uh, I don't have a HR team. I do a lot of that myself. We outsource some and we've got a great outsourced provider. Um, but we've got, you know, HR where we don't have a legal team. We don't have, um, like I said, marketing. There's a lot of things we don't have. So, and just because at the size we're at, we can't, I mean, I'd love to. When, when you start a business, a lot of people, I think, have this impression that you get to sit down and build the dream team like fantasy football. <laughs> That's not how it yeah, I know.
2: know. <laughs> you've yep. got to
1: justify every headcount, and you've got to make sure yep. that you're getting the right person, that you can afford them and that you're making that money before you spend it and all those factors. So we very much do see that when we look at little startups with two people or three people, we very much feel very the, the same a lot of the time. We, we've got a lot of technicians um, and we've got a, a few people that are selling, but we, we we don't have a lot of those roles. So it's, it is tricky, but um, again, I speak to businesses with a hundred staff and they say the same things. It's I I don't, every time you, I guess, graduating to that next category, I, you see that there's a whole new set of challenges and problems. Um, and then if you do have all those teams and you've got to hire managers to manage those teams and, and all that, I, I it, it very much is accepting that it is a journey. It's definitely not a destination. Yeah,
2: yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that because you're right. I think a lot of people have this perception of, okay, this business has been up and running for X amount of years and they just see it as this well-oiled machine that just has – all the resources and everything but a lot of the times it it takes time to justify bringing in a whole team to do a you know one set like one certain job um and especially coming in from corporate like that's the perspective I had before I started Hmm. doing this because I was like okay well at Telstra there's like one person who just does the emails for customers there's one person who just does um the the designs for certain products um that Telstra has you know like it's it's so so niche so when you're when you come out of that and you see you know businesses and um local businesses doing their own thing and learning you know like I'm learning from you now hearing all of this um <laughs> it's just like a it's a massive eye-opener and it's so great to see those truths because it, it also helps it also makes you want to support your local business too.
1: You just forget if you don't know. And locally is one of our values. Where we can, we yeah. always procure everything locally. Um, but um, I guess the other thing we see is that the perception of clients as you get more mature, as you've been in the market longer, as you look more professional and you've got the corporate signage and all the things that people look out for, uh, people become less tolerant. So if you go to a Sunday market and you buy a handmade scarf from a little old lady and it's got a, a stitch out of place, you're not going to go back and throw it down her throat and swear at her and tell her you want your money back. But no. if you go to Bunnings and buy a whippersnipper snipper and it doesn't work, you're very comfortable doing that. Um, and in much the same way that if you go to that little lady and she, you give her twenty dollars and she gives you change for a fifty, you're going to say, "Oh, I actually only gave you a twenty because she's you can you can see her. She's very human. She's just like you. She's standing right in front of you." Again, go to Woolworths and they give you back the wrong change. You give yourself a little high five and say, got, "I just made twenty bucks out of that transaction." So I think people, as we've gotten bigger and as we've gotten more professional, people no longer give you those. Passes as they do when you're small. So there are benefits to being small mm. and, and, and boutique um, the way we've got to combat that, like, cause we still make mistakes. We sometimes have a job booked in and we'll have someone miss it on the service bench and the customer comes back and it's not ready on time. Um, and, and like, we're still human. It's yeah. about calling that customer and saying, listen, I'm really sorry we stuffed up. And uh, and more often than not, people go, well, I'm still cranky, but I get it. We're only human. Um, and it's really yeah. about owning those mistakes and still showing them that, hey, we're just like you, we're just people, we're doing our best and we're, pers- we, you know, we're- it's showing them that human side, which we lose so quickly in corporate.
2: Yes. And I, I love that. Like just being more human in business is just going to make life so much better for everybody. In yeah, every we, in every decision in every de- interaction that we have, so
1: we, yeah, it, it's we the first thing that. you get taught in sales is people buy off people and people buy with emotion and everything we focus on so much with all those other things don't reflect on either of those things. It's, it's it's showing people that you're just like them.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, so last question. Um, this is one of my favorite questions. Who are your heroes and why?
1: Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because there's so so many. Um. I guess the thing for me is that I, I sort of see things at a local level, and then I see things at a, you know, massive level. Which you do have folks who, um, I guess, for me growing up, there were certain role models that I looked up to, and I thought, well, there's someone who I want to be like that person. Um, and mm-hmm. I think everyone has that. And for me, it was probably a few key teachers at school, um, people who really showcased values that I wanted to be like, and and didn't have in the home, so I could look at someone and go, wow. That guy is incredibly respectful to women, and what what is the difference between what I see there and what I see maybe at home? And and realizing that I have a choice and that I could copy that. Um, so for me, there was a few very strong role models like that. But I guess um, heroes out
2: and they of, are heroes. Like they are yeah, they are they heroes. Are, so when and I never get yeah <laughs> exactly. So no, we should no. So I'd love for you to speak about them more because when I say heroes, it's it's not necessarily you know. Putting this person that no, like you know, few of us know, like all of us have heard of but don't know. It can be anyone. It can be people that you're in touch on a daily basis that you know that you know they're your teachers. So yeah, please talk to us about like some of their values that you like because. You know, they are heroes for I, sure.
1: Absolutely, and 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 like I said, it's very yeah. easy to look at people like you mentioned before, like Gary B. and I mean, I don't necessarily agree with everything that comes out of his mouth, but seventy-five yeah. percent of it is is what. And I guess the other unique thing is being able to take people's good and leave their bad. Um, so yeah. for me, it's about looking at somebody who maybe says something, and I think, well, I don't necessarily think that we're going to be friends and we're going to have a beer together, but that one thing is really good, really cool and I'm going to copy it. Um, and that's something a lot of us struggle with because once we determine someone's bad, we write them off. Um, and once we determine someone's good, we let them get away with changing our other values. So that's tricky. But I think for me, um, and like I said, you, it's easy in the IT industry. We've got some awesome stories. We've got the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs where yeah. they've started things and done good things. And I mean, you don't need to be in IT to find their, their actions inspirational, um, but I guess the, the difference for me is inspirational versus transformational and inspirational in that we look at something and we go, wow, that made me get up in the morning and with a lot of energy transformational in that we, I'm going to actually take that on board and change what I do and change my perspective. Take and yeah. yeah. Take action. Exactly. Execute on it. Um, and I think the thing is when you look at the people that you interact with personally, one-on-one and often you don't realize it until many, many years later. And and again, for me in school i had a few teachers i have actually got a principal that i work with now he was a teacher at school um, and him and i used to butt heads at school a lot and i realized mm. growing up that he didn't have to do that he could have just said yeah I mate and walked away we we're butting heads because he was trying to help me and you don't realize mm. that until 10 years time and even yeah. with your children when you're when you're raising children you look at them and you you say things and you see things and you realize that hey i remember people doing this for me and as a kid, you feel like they're doing it to you, whereas they're really, they're going out of their way to try to direct you um, and direct your actions. So I guess the big thing for me is that um, kindness and respect because the, and I'm not saying respect is in you should respect someone because they're older than you or because they're, they've got more money or any of those things, but um, being willing to share that respect and and uh, I guess giving respect maybe before you receive it sometimes as well. But it's it's just having those few key people where you can, unashamedly look up to and say that person's an awesome person Um, and I guess the thing is for all of us that's something we want other people to do with us um, particularly as we get older and we get younger people look to us for wisdom Um, so if you if you can't identify that it's very hard to then demonstrate those qualities so yeah it's predominantly people who and maybe they've only given me it's only been one little thing at one point in time but when you think about it, it, it that was the turning point when you chose to be who you were. And then those choices and actions then led you down a particular direction in life. And you wouldn't be where you were without that.
2: Yeah, I love that. And what I really liked about what you said just now was how you need to take what someone says in context of that whole person. So just because you don't like that person, all the things that they may have shown you, they may have one slither of great advice that could completely open your eyes up to something new. Or yeah. you could be listening to someone who, like, we've talked about Gary Vee, who is just really this extroverted guy who's, you know, talks and talks and he's out there yeah. and he gives advice about just doing it and not being, you know, not being afraid, not being scared and not fearing judgment. But you have to take that advice with the context of this person. So obviously he has just this, inc- like, incredible amount of confidence and he's so extroverted and all of these things. So how can you take what he's saying and put it into your own context so if you're introverted how are you going to handle just not caring and going out there and putting in all your energy to do these things so Mm -hmm. it's about taking advice for the context i suppose as well
1: yeah and people it's like when people say things like money doesn't buy happiness when they're driving a ferrari and you're like well yeah (laughs) but (laughs) like and a a great example where people struggle to that even topics like religion where people look at a religion and say i'm not of that religious belief therefore everything that that piece of scripture says is irrelevant to me. Like um I, I've I listen to some I listen to lots of podcasts and I listen to some podcasts that are preachers going on about a particular topic that's incredibly relevant and incredibly accurate. Um, and I don't like their faith may be completely different. So I'm looking at something or or you know, the the core values that we teach kids that maybe, you know, we we maybe have had a bad experience in at one stage of our life with that. Therefore, we don't listen. But there could be some really great nuggets of advice there that could really help. So it's it's been open to learn, I think, more than anything, always been willing to to grow and learn and change regardless of the, um, I guess, the preconceived notions that you go in with.
2: Yeah. And trying to learn from people who are so different to you as well, because sometimes I think we, you know, like, when you talked about um listening to that podcast I immediately immediately thought I'd probably just like shut that that down because I'm personally not very very religious but you're right mm. like just because that person is religious and he's different to me doesn't mean I can't learn from that person um so it's just a reminder as well like for me or for anyone who um is you know taking advice or listening in on people who are completely different or have different views that you know, they've got they've got great opinions as well, and they've got great advice as well. So. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think the ability the ability to let people have a discussion on their views and actually listen is very powerful because you're you're yeah. when you block out what everybody knows something that you don't, and, and everybody's yes. better at things than you are. Um, and and it could be a homeless person on the street. I guarantee you they've got an yes. ability that you don't. So when we start to categorise people and block out what they've got to say based on our preconceived opinions, yes. I, the only person that suffers is us. We miss out. So I think it's having that discussion and and being open to what everybody has to say, truly listening, not necessarily changing your views, but actually listening to what people are saying, yeah.
2: Yeah, love that. Oh, thank you so much for your time. It was awesome no chatting.
1: Worries. Thank
2: you. Thank you. you.
0: Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of Behind the Bee Box. My journey with Brainy Box has inspired me to share what I've learned from others with you in the hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business, or workplace. Your feedback and love is what keeps me going. So please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at BrainyBox, or connect with me on LinkedIn at Sherry Amami. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you soon.